Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Aaron McMillan opens the scriptures. Pastor Keith and the mission team uh, send their greetings. They've already been to church at about... I guess 8 o'clock last night, which was 9 o'clock in the morning there. So they're 13 hours ahead. They send their, their greetings. We're looking forward to having them uh, back here next week, and they will be able to share a report and give us an update on our missionaries and all that they were able to uh, see and hear while they were there. So they would appreciate your prayers as they engage uh, beginning tomorrow. Over the course of the past nine weeks... We've nearly covered the last half of John. Our eight-hour series leading up to Palm Sunday covered John 13 through 17. And then last week, we listened to John 18 through 20 read for us as we considered the death and resurrection of Christ. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to stick with the Gospel of John before we launch into a new series, but we're just going to take little small snippets that I've just chosen at random, because I can, because Patrick Keith's not here. Uh, So, but we're going to stay with the theme, we're going to uh, be in John 20 uh, this week, and then we'll look at the restoration of Peter in John 21 next week to give you a little preview. But our text for this morning is just going to be five verses. Five verses found in John 20. We're going to be in verses 19 through 23. But as we begin, will you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Lord, we are thankful that we are able to come together, lift our voices in worship. I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would speak to us through your spirit, that you would empower us for your service that we would be challenged and encouraged this morning by the mission that you have sent us on. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I just want to set the context for us briefly in John. It should be hopefully familiar in your mind. But where we're at in the text specifically is the evening of Resurrection Day. It's the evening of Jesus' resurrection, but the disciples haven't seen Jesus yet. And so... I wonder if you could put yourself in the shoes of the disciples and and think about their day and, and the week that they have just experienced. They have heard from Mary and the other women that Jesus' body was certainly gone. Peter and John had seen the empty tomb. Some women claimed that Jesus was risen, but none of the disciples up to this point have actually seen Jesus yet. And so my guess is, if you're a disciple, you're pretty confused. You might be a little scared. You're certainly anxious not knowing what is going to happen. It had been a crazy week. One week prior, we had the triumphal entry. You had Jesus right into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are shouting, Hosanna, waving palm branches. It's a joyous celebration. But within days... That joy, that celebration was soon turned into confusion and despair. It was Thursday night that they shared the Passover meal with Jesus. But then Jesus made a left turn 
and he washed their feet. And he washed their feet, and then he started to talk about a new covenant, a new covenant that was made with his body and in his blood. He had been warning that he was going away, but he had also told them that they were all going to abandon him. Of course, at that time, the disciples all protested, of course, we would never abandon you, but of course, it was Jesus who was right, and all the disciples soon failed Jesus. You think about Judas. Judas had sold out Jesus to the Jewish leaders. He tried to take it back, but he couldn't. And his grief, his despair, his guilt drove him to hang himself. When Jesus asked the disciples to come to the garden with him and pray, they couldn't even stay awake. They fell asleep. When guards showed up in the garden, what did the disciples do? They ran. They ran away when he was arrested. Peter outright denied Jesus three times. It sounds like John might have been the only disciple who was actually present at the crucifixion. That was two days ago. No doubt, though, by this time, the disciples had heard of his torture and death. And now they're going on two days without their leader, without their friend. They had left everything behind to follow Jesus, but now... He was gone. I wonder if you were one of those disciples. At that moment, what would you have been thinking? What would have been running through your mind? If if I was one of those disciples, I'm sure I would be racking my brain, trying to think through everything that Jesus said, and I'd probably be worried. I'd probably be asking myself, like, well, how in the world is this possible? I thought he was Messiah. I thought he was going to come and usher in the kingdom. And, and what's happening? I might start to, to question Jesus. Was Jesus not the Messiah that I had come to believe? Has the last three years of my life been a lie? Well, what am I going to do now? What comes next? The women claim that Jesus' body was gone, but I don't know how to make sense of that either. Would the Jewish leaders be coming after the disciples next? Am I in danger? Are my other friends here in danger? I know that Jesus has said that he was going to leave us, but he was also going to send another helper, and I don't see any help here. Actually, I feel the opposite. I feel quite helpless. Now, a lot of that is speculation on my part. But as we get into our first verse here, we get some idea of what the disciples were doing and thinking. And so we see in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And so we do, this confirms that disciples were fearful. They were scared. They were huddled together. They were in a locked room. I'm sure they were wondering if they would be next on the list for arrest or maybe even worse. And it could have been because they were one of Jesus' disciples. Or maybe they were going to be implicated in the scheme or the plot to steal Jesus' body. But then suddenly... Jesus came and stood among them. In a moment, from behind a locked door, Jesus appears to this scared, weary group of men. How shocking it must have been in that moment. Sure, they had seen Jesus do miraculous things before, 
But I'm sure his sudden appearance would have still been a shock. And I can just imagine them standing there dumbfounded. Their jaw is almost on the ground. But Jesus continues. John says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, I can't believe you all abandoned me. Didn't you listen to a word I said? Peter, how could you deny me? Not once, not twice, but three times, Peter. What were you thinking? Where's Thomas? Why isn't Thomas here? Where did he go? Why are you, why is he not with you? Is he not even a disciple anymore? Do you not remember that I said I would raise this temple in three days? Well, here I am. It's day three. This is what I was talking about, disciples. Why are you so scared? Do you not believe that I am the Messiah? Do you not know that I am the Son of God? (laughs) No, that's what I would have said. That's not what Jesus said. That's why we encourage you to open up your Bibles to look at the text for yourself. Jesus didn't say any of those things. He made no accusations. There were no rebukes, no questions, not even a hint of disappointment or frustration. Instead, we see Jesus appear with the most compassionate, loving, and calming phrase. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now this isn't just a greeting. This isn't just saying, calm down. I think there's something way bigger at play with this little phrase, specifically this one word, peace. Because it's this one word, Peace that encompasses the message and hope of the gospel. It points to the whole purpose of the last three days. Jesus has completed his mission. He has lived the perfect life. He has endured the cross on behalf of sinful men. He has experienced and satisfied the wrath of God by offering his life as the perfect Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so it's here on this day, as he enters the locked room where the disciples were huddled in fear, Jesus can proclaim peace, because he has crushed the head of the serpent. He has conquered the sting of death. And he has emerged victorious over the grave through the power of his spirit. In one word, his death and resurrection has brought peace. Peace between God and man. Through the blood of the cross and the power of the resurrection. This is not just a simple phrase to help calm their nerves. This is the gospel. Peace be with you. Jesus stands as living proof to this reality. We know that Jesus knows the disciples well. I don't think they've lifted up their jaws off the floor quite yet. 
And so we read verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think Jesus understands that the disciples are going to need a minute. They're going to need to think this through to process all that has just happened in just a few moments. In Luke, we read that Jesus asked for something to eat. This wasn't because he was hungry, in my opinion. He was doing this for the disciples. He's showing the disciples, I'm hungry. Can you bring me some fish? Because I'm not a spirit. I'm not a figment somehow of your collective imaginations. No, I'm here in the flesh and blood. I have risen from the grave. He comes proclaiming peace to both their hearts and their minds. It says that then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And and when I read that, I'm like, glad? They were glad? What is... It just seems like a very understated way to translate it. And so I looked into it, and the root of this word is Cairo, which is most often translated rejoice. And I think you see some other trans... Glad is the most common translation by far. It's accurate. But I just picture... The disciples aren't just... Like when I'm glad, I'm like half smiling. I... I get criticized for that. I'm sorry. That's my personality. I don't think there was any half smiles here. I think the disciples were overjoyed. I think the disciples were cheering. They were rejoicing. Here is Jesus. He is the Messiah. His promises are true. He brings us peace. He has won. The room and the atmosphere completely shifts. In a matter of moments, the disciples go from despair to joy, from confusion to clarity, from cowering to confident, from lost to found. He had brought them peace that had been bought by his blood. So before we move on, I think we also want to step back, zoom out, and remember the bigger picture of what Jesus had been doing for the past three years not just the past three days. Yes, his mission had been to redeem mankind, and this has been accomplished. But Jesus had also been preparing them, the disciples, for their own mission. From the very beginning, Jesus had called these men to leave everything they knew, not only to become his disciples, but to become fishers, of men. Over these past three years, Jesus had been preparing these men for this moment. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They slept with Jesus. They listened to Jesus. They learned from Jesus. They saw firsthand all that Jesus was and all that he came to do. This was no accident. They also saw his disdain for religious behavior without a true heart for God. His zeal for his father's house, his love for the sinner and the lost, his compassion on the poor and the cripple, his desire to reach out to the lost and the lonely. 
Jesus had been preparing the disciples to love what he loved and hate what he hated. And in their moment of distress, he has once again sought them out and bring them his reassuring peace. So can I just take a minute, speak to those of you in the room this morning who might be feeling more like the disciples who are hiding behind locked doors before Jesus came into the room. Maybe you've had doubts or questions about who Jesus is or what he has come to do. You might relate to Thomas, who was avoiding this group of disciples. Maybe you've been facing difficult circumstances, situations that are out of your control, and you're struggling to wonder how in the world could God let this happen? Just like I'm sure the disciples would have been wondering how God could have allowed Jesus to be crucified. Or maybe you're here and you feel like Peter, struggling with past failures or guilt. You question whether or not God could really love you after all that you've done. You have regrets in your past. You don't think that God could ever use you again. Or maybe you're like some of the other disciples who they're thinking about the future. It fills you with anxiety or stress just thinking about what tomorrow might bring. And honestly, you would rather not find out. I don't know where you're at here this morning. But but I see at least three encouragements just here in these two verses that should speak to you no matter where you find yourself. Jesus knows you. Just like the disciples, he knows you intimately. He already knows your faults. He knows. He knows your flaws, your struggles, your fears, your doubts, your questions. He knew the disciples. He knows you and me. Despite that, Jesus comes to you. Knowing your flaws, just like the disciples, Jesus comes to you. To bring his peace. In the midst of all your struggles. And all your doubts. And all your fears. And all your stress and anxiety. And fill in the blank with wherever you find yourself wrestling with God this morning. Jesus comes to you. With a message of hope. A message of love. He not only comes to you. He comes to you with this message of peace. And Jesus is preparing you. Whatever has happened in your life is not without purpose. Just like the disciples, Jesus is using everything that has brought you to this moment in order to prepare you for what's coming next. And this is where all of this leads to this first truth, and then we're going to get to the second. Jesus is preparing you for the mission. Jesus is preparing you for the mission. Just as Jesus has showed the disciples his hand and his side, it is the Spirit of God 
who is testifying to us about the truth of the gospel. We have this truth in our hands, just as real as Jesus was in the room with the disciples this day. Jesus, through his word, comes, stands before us, and gives us his peace. You can claim that peace this morning. You can know that peace this morning by placing your faith in the finished work of Christ, which has already been accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. We want to know this peace and understand that he has been preparing us for the mission. The next truth we find is almost as remarkable as the first. Not only has Jesus prepared us for a mission, Jesus has called you to join the mission. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus has called you to join the mission. This is John's version of what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. Jesus is telling disciples, I was sent and I have accomplished my mission. But there is still more to come. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, now Jesus was sending the disciples into the world. And so what is the mission? Well, just as Jesus was sent into the world to bring the message of the gospel and to represent the Father, now the disciples are called to bring the message of the now fulfilled gospel and to be representatives of Christ. What will that look like for the disciples? And by way of application, then, what will it look like for you and for me? To put it in the most simplest terms, it will look like Jesus. It will look like modeling Jesus. And if we were to go through and briefly scan the Gospels, we get a picture of what Jesus was sent to do and how he accomplished his task. And so I just want to pull out a few examples to show you how this works. What was Jesus sent to do? Well, Jesus was sent to be our Savior. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now the work of this message is now complete. But now the disciples are called to point the world to its Savior. Jesus' mission now becomes the basis or the message of our mission as we seek to follow Him. Our mission is not the same as Jesus' mission. Our mission is to point to Jesus. Jesus was sent to set people free. Luke 4.18 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so Jesus now commissions us to proclaim freedom in Christ. We are called to preach the gospel to the poor, to the sick, to the oppressed, to sinners. But remember the example of Christ. 
He didn't merely walk around preaching the gospel. He lived the gospel. He demonstrated the gospel. He showed the gospel. He walked among the people. He spent time with them. He sought them out. If the church, if you and I are to join in this mission that we have been commissioned by Christ to accomplish, we must not be selective with the gospel. We must show the world the compassion, the heart, the love of Jesus. It doesn't matter whether they are economically poor or morally poor, whether they are in a physical prison or whether they are held captive by their own sin or religious traditions or even their wealth, whether they are physically blind or spiritually blind, whether they are socially oppressed or they are oppressed by sin or fear or anxiety, we are called to preach the freedom that can only be found in Christ. I would say in our modern culture, this is tough. This is tough because the world just seems so hostile to the gospel. People are increasingly blinded by their sin. As much as that is true, I might have a bigger fear that most of the time we don't proclaim the freedom in Christ to people who aren't like us because we're just pretty comfortable with the life that we have. We like our life. We like the way things are. And we really don't want to be inconvenienced by people who make us uncomfortable. If we're not following Jesus' example to share the good news with people in need, we are not fully participating in the mission that he has called us to. We must strive to see people like Jesus did with compassion because they are wandering around like helpless sheep without a shepherd. We could talk more, but we'll move on. Jesus was sent to be a servant. Mark 10:45. for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was Jesus' mission, and now we are commissioned to serve those around us. We're only a few days out from the Last Supper, where Jesus showed his disciples what it looks like to serve. This, once again, is so countercultural for us today. We live in a consumer-driven, me-first society that tells us to do whatever makes us most happy and whatever will bring us most satisfaction. But that's not the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. And that's not the mission that Jesus calls us to participate in. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Those were the words of Jesus. So we must ask ourselves, am I modeling this serve first mentality of Christ as I seek to fulfill the mission he has called me to? And so when was the last time? When was the last time that you actually served someone without expectation of repayment? When was the last time you had to sacrifice your time, your wallet, your preferences in order to serve someone else's need? Because that's the mission 
that we have been called to join in. Jesus was sent to do the Father's will. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus now commissions us to submit to that same will, to God's will. How did Jesus know the will of God in his humanity? Jesus' life was marked by prayer. He shows us what it looks like to walk in step with the Spirit. Some of us are not fulfilling the mission of Christ because we are not even seeking the will of the Father. We have neglected to seek out his will and instead have been satisfied living our lives according to our own will, our own desires. So how how do I know what the will of the Father is? Well, ultimately, it's spelled out for us. Ephesians 4.13, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the, the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Our ultimate purpose and destination is to become more like Christ. That's God's will. 100%, I can guarantee you what God's will for your life is. As a believer, as a disciple of Jesus, your will is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's will for your life. But this will only happen if we seek out Scripture and then we obey. That's what it means to submit to God's will. Someone told me after first service that I'm not old enough to know about Radio Orphan Annie's Secret Society. You're right. There might be a famous Christmas movie, though, that talks about that with a little boy who is determined to get the secret Dakota ring to find out the secret message that is blared across the radio. And this little kid has to drink, I guess, an absurd amount of Ovaltine so that he can collect all the pieces, all the thing, tickets or whatever, so he can get the secret decoder ring. And he goes through all of this. He ends up not liking Ovaltine anymore. But he gets the decoder ring. And he's got he's gonna unlock the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> and the message was the secret message that he had been working for so long. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> Are you kidding me? A commercial? <laughs> some people treat God's will like that. Like it's some big mysterious secret and they have to jump through all these hoops and then no wonder they're disappointed because they think that they're unlocking all the secrets in the universe. Like it's here. God's word and w- reveals his will. We don't need a secret decoder ring. We need to be in his word. It's not about connecting all the dots or decoding things. It's plain for us through Scripture. We cannot say that we are joining in the mission if we are not studying, knowing, and living out God's will for our lives according to the Scripture. Jesus was sent to glorify the Father. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so Jesus now commissions us to live for God's glory as well. Jesus never sought his own glory apart from the Father. He was not concerned with position or power or prestige of this world. Rather, he sought the glory that could only come through the Father. How does this happen? How do our lives bring glory to God once again? We seek to obey like Christ. 
We proclaim the message of Christ. We serve like Christ. We love like Christ. It's when we are living like Christ that we bring honor and glory to God's name. Which also means the opposite is true. When we disobey, when we keep the message of salvation to ourselves, when we are focused on what we want, we are not bringing the Father glory. Ultimately, it's a matter of faith. It's an extended argument that I won't get into, but Paul in Romans 4 is talking about Abraham, and he's commending Abraham's faith. And and he writes this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. If you go find John Murray's commentary on Romans, what he says is these two things go hand in hand. Giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he has promised, he is able to perform. When we marry these two things, we trust in who God is, this is what brings uh, glory to God, our faith. Living by faith. This brings glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tells us that we are everything that we do. We ought to bring glory to God. I think this morning is an example. It's an example of how we are to, we have a unique opportunity to glorify God when we gather here for corporate worship. And, and so I, I hope this is why you are here this morning. You have set aside time to fully focus on the Lord in order to learn more of him to respond with worship through prayer and through praise. We corporately join together to declare God's glory to our own hearts that ought to influence the world around us. We could keep going and going with more examples, but I hope we've grasped the idea. Christ has called us to a mission that reflects his mission. Thankfully, his work has been accomplished. But now he calls us to fulfill our mission just as he has fulfilled his. At his ascension, Jesus made our mission explicitly clear in Matthew 28. What is our mission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so that thought bridges to our last and shortest truth this morning. Jesus will equip you for the mission. He's prepared you, he has called you, but he will also equip you. This is verse 22 and 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We won't spend much time on this last point because we've already spent a significant time, amount of time discussing the role of the Holy Spirit just in our last series. But the significance of verse 22 cannot be overstated. Jesus does not expect us, and we are not able to complete this mission 
on her own. John 14, John 15, John 16. Jesus has assured the disciples that the Father would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit who would teach them, guide them, equip them with everything they need to fulfill their mission. This scene here in verse 22 was a preview of what would be coming in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to all those who believe. You look at verse 23, and it looks a little odd. Can the church forgive people and withhold forgiveness from people? And there's various interpretations about this, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but this is really what I think this is saying. It's best understood by understanding how it connects with the Holy Spirit and get into some geeky stuff about uh, Greek tenses. It's uh, the verbs forgive and withhold are in the perfect tense in Greek, which doesn't translate well into English. And so what it uh, denotes is that there was a past action, but that it continually has effects into the present. And so how you could read this or translate this in in your head is the phrases could be translated, they have been forgiven and it has been withheld. And, And so what this means for us is that the church, as it proclaims the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, it can say with utmost confidence that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven. And the church can say with utmost confidence that those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiving. The church isn't forgiving and not forgiving and withholding the forgiveness of God. That's not what's happening. The church is declaring what's already true based on the spirit and the word. If you think about it, Jesus was literally the place where God was present and forgiveness was found as he walked this earth. But now through the Spirit, the church proclaims that same message. The church is called to be the vehicle by which people will hear the gospel and receive forgiveness for their sins. And at the same time, the world is warned that to be outside of Christ is to stand unforgiven by God. It is the Holy Spirit who equips us to spread this message and also enables us to live a life that brings him glory. So the question becomes, well, how will you respond? Look at what happened to the disciples. The same ones who were paralyzed by fear, locked in a room together on the day Jesus rose from the grave. They initiate and launch the church after the ascension and the arrival and filling of the Holy Spirit. If you go back and read church tradition, you see the early church. What were they known for? Turning the world upside down. And if you remember where they started, you're like, those guys? Those guys? You go, you can read church traditions about how all of these guys were martyrs. They all died following Jesus. They all died fulfilling the mission, making disciples. John was so stubborn, he refused to die. Even after getting boiled in oil, but he died still fulfilling his mission, the mission that Christ had called him to. There's only one explanation for that. It's kind of two. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Only thing that can explain the birth of the church. That was the disciples, so what about you? Will you commit to fulfilling your mission just as Christ 
fulfilled his? Will you influence our community, those around you, for Christ? Will you seek to live for his glory and not your own? Will you commit to being a part of building his kingdom and making disciples? This is how we find our meaning and our purpose. This is where we find joy and fulfillment. This is how the church expands and the gospel wins. This is our confidence. This is our hope. This is our mission. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we are thankful that this does not depend on us. You have done it and you continue to do it. But I pray that we would respond to the call to join in your work, to fulfill whatever role you would have us play in this great mission of making the disciples, proclaiming freedom to the lost. Help us see people the way that you see people. Help us see God the way we ought to see him. Change us by your spirit and by your word. We pray in your name. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.